American Road Trip Talk begins after this message. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along for the ride. Glad to be working alongside Nathan Miller, our producer. This is American Road Trip Talk. We'll be back with the interview right after this. In western Nebraska, Sydney used to be known as the toughest town on the tracks. Today, Sydney is home to family-owned restaurants and vibrant downtown full of unique shops. Plan your trip to Sydney and learn more at visitsydneyne.com. Make this picture perfect in Oregon's Mount Hood territory. Get into history's interactive side on the Heritage Trail. Meet baby animals on farm loops and visit vineyards on the New Wine Trail. Plan your trip today at mounthoodterritory.com. Are we there yet? That's not a question you'll be hearing while cruising around Nevada. That's because here in the road trip capital of the USA, that old cliche about it being the journey that matters more is actually legit. In Nevada, you can kick back in a crowdless state or national park. Gaze up at some of the nation's darkest, most star-studded skies. Meander among the world's oldest living trees. Have your breath stolen by the crystal clear waters of Lake Tahoe. All along the way, you will find the kinds of iconic, wide-open highways where road trip dreams are made. For insider tips about Nevada road trips and unexpected Silver State destinations, Order your free Nevada magazine and visitor guide today at TravelNevada.com slash travel dash guides. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk, everyone. Today we celebrate Veterans Day a day early. We celebrate those who sacrificed their time, much of their lives, sometimes their lives themselves in the service of the United States of America in wartime and in peacetime as well. We are grateful for them. And in connection with, we thought today we would see how did the car production world contribute to success, particularly during World War II. And for that, we brought back our friend Mark Green. Mark Green is the founder, CEO, producer, and host of the very popular Cars Yeah, a -a five-day-a-week podcast. Mark is a dedicated automotive enthusiast, and he loves it when others become one, too. We've come to know him as a friend. Mark, welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me back, and uh, a hearty, happy Veterans Day to all those veterans and their families uh, who serve, have served, are currently serving, and uh, we appreciate you very, very much. Absolutely. Looking back to World War II, people see it, and rightly so, as such a signature event in the history of Western civilization. Let me, Mark, start by quoting an article that I found on uh, Hertz.com. 
they know a thing or two about cars, but they delved into the history books here. Hertz.com, part of the article reads as follows, and the header is Retooling an Industry. The production of U.S. cars in 1940 hit nearly 4.7 million, but on January 1, 1942, the government froze the sale of consumer vehicles. Instead of working on luxury designs and automotive innovations, automakers were building tanks, trucks, airplanes, jeeps, torpedoes, and even helmets. Factories stripped down to make way for new equipment, and many car parts were melted down at steel mills for use in war efforts. Mark, that's just astounding to me for an industry to be going along with innovation, with scientific developments, always trying to build the better beast. And then all of a sudden, the war was on. As I said, January 1, 1942, Pearl Harbor, of course, December 7, 1941. And then in less than a month, the government froze the sale of consumer vehicles and the future, an uncertain one, lay ahead of us. What an extraordinary time. It was pretty incredible. When you think about, could that happen today? Would that happen today? And what would that look like? I don't know. Uh, it, it it begs the question, but I have had so many great people on my podcast. And one of my guests who was on multiple times is a writer named A.J. Bame. And he wrote a book along with many car books that he's written that I typically talk with him about. But he wrote a book called The Arsenal of Democracy. And it outlined the tremendous efforts that the automobile industry made during World War II to support the U.S. and our allies. And the fact that the government came out and said, you know what, you guys need to help us here. You need to retool. And I think it took about 18 months for them to completely remake themselves, all the manufacturers, and start producing items that our troops needed in uh, in the war effort. And you had people like Cadillac and Chrysler that were building tanks. You had airplane engines uh, being built by them. You had Ford building B-24 bombers. And today in, in our talk, we're going to get into a little more of the detail there. But there's a trivial question. Trivia question I'll start you with. Who do you think said this, Gary? Never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger as it is now. I'll give you one guess. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Is yeah, that regarded gave... his his arsenal of democracy speech, I believe? Yeah, yeah, December 29th, 1940. And at that time, I believe that was the largest radio audience ever to listen, if we could only have audiences that big here, but we're working on that, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, much more important things that he had to talk about. But yeah, the industry was absolutely incredible what they did. Uh, and boy, did they do a lot of things. And one of the things that happened was all of a sudden they were asking for people to donate metals. And one of the things I wanted to touch on as it relates to the car industry here is there was all these cars before the war, many of them quite spectacular, and people were asked to turn them in. People were turning in their pots and pans so that the war effort had material to build all these things with. And I've often thought about what were all the magnificent cars that we could perhaps still have today and restore today that disappeared because of that effort. So changed the course of a lot of things, didn't it? It certainly did. In fact, as I recall reading in another article, rubber 
was being rationed. So you couldn't have a whole bunch of commercially produced tires for domestic use. They needed the rubber for the war effort. Well, absolutely. And there's another one that relates to this, and that's chromium. If you think about it, a lot of cars had chrome back in the day, a lot more after the war. But chromium was, they said, look, we need this stuff. So there were cars that were built during the war, before the war, actually. There weren't cars being built during the war. That all of a sudden, if you look at them now in car shows, you go, where's the chrome? The bumpers are painted. The trim is all painted. And it's because that chromium was headed towards the war effort and those cars that were produced right before the war all that stuff was painted so sometimes you go to a car show and you go well this isn't accurate well actually for that time period it is accurate and speaking of that time it it seems like ever since people talk about the jeep the jeep (laughs) there but in world war ii it was indispensable those relatively little vehicles they handled so much of the burden of getting people to and from in order to prosecute the war. Yeah, absolutely. You make them fancy today, but back then they were downright (laughs) essential. Well, yeah. And uh, there were a lot of people that were even buying the the surplus Jeeps after the war and driving them around. Uh, They were quite amazing. I had several people on my podcast that have written really in-depth books about that vehicle, how fast it was put together, and really how it changed the battlefield for many, many people. Um, And I think the commercial production, well, after the war, the commercial production ended on that. But the the Army, I think it was 1940, some some November, late 1940, they got their first Jeep prototype. Um, They were built in the Ohio-based Willys Overland Motors plant and uh, those cars really changed the world but you still see a few of them driving around today and you think about the current model jeep and the history of that and where it all came from it's pretty darn spectacular with the commercial production having come to an end i wonder what how that affected the psyche of course you know we were about to get into world war ii so all eyes turned toward overseas and our necessity of becoming involved and we did our best to stay out of it when i think about the uh the change in the american landscape there were things people planned on doing and they needed a fancy new car they wanted some luxury they wanted high performance for the day maybe some good gas mileage as well and suddenly all of that ground to a halt you know this was a massive directed american effort to defeat evil on the world stage and the war officially as historians note uh, is regarded as having started on september 1 1939 with the invasion of poland by nazi germany and all this time here americans across the water wondering when or if are we going to get involved what what does this mean for us and then all of a sudden with pearl harbor it came home to us in a striking tragic and overwhelming fashion and we had to respond and the car production companies were there to lead the way well they were and i I pulled up a couple statistics here for our talk today and one of them was g general motors gm became the largest military contractor on earth here's a couple stats they made over 119 million shells that were shot out of airplanes and aircraft carriers 206,000 aircraft engines 97,000 bombers 301,000 aircraft propellers 
198,000 diesel engines, 1.9 million machine guns, 854,000 military trucks. Cadillac made tanks, like I said. Oldsmobile made bullets. Buick made airplane engines. What happened in these factories was quite phenomenal. And you think back to the old Rosie the Riveter. All these men went off to war, so they were bringing in a very new group of people to manufacture, and that was women, which had never been done before. Women typically stayed home with the kids, and now they were going to work. So the monumental effort to change all of this was was quite spectacular. And I wanted to touch on something that happened recently that was somewhat similar, and that was the COVID pandemic, because manufacturers, car manufacturers went to work and made the um, uh, medical supplies needed during the COVID problem, the respirators. So it kind of happened again in a much, much, much smaller format. But these companies, when they're asked to come forward and help the world, they do it. And it's pretty amazing uh, that they do this and that they were able to do it. So you think about some of those numbers, it kind of kind of blows you away a little bit. That's a bad pun when we're talking about war, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry I get about it. that. <laughs> well, yeah. by the time uh, I understand, by the time the war ended, two of the top three U.S. defense contractors in terms of volume were automakers. Yep, military goods accounted for forty percent of the U.S. gross domestic product. These are not numbers that we are used to in our generation. No, it's absolutely incredible. And as we move through this process, and there's, there's again, A.J. Bame's book is a great one to read, but there's a lot of resources you can go and learn much more in depth about this than we have time today. But one of the things that happened out of all this was post-war ingenuity. Um, in 1946, cars went back into production, so now... People could buy cars. And out of this came some really cool new technology. One of the things was before the war, a lot of the cars, you had to hand crank them to start them. My dad had a 49 MGTC that he had to do that with, about ripped his arm off one day when it back kicked on him. But now we had keys you could turn on and start the cars. Automatic transmissions all of a sudden became more of the norm. Uh, power everything. Even power steering eventually, but things like power windows, power antennas, uh, signals on cars, and signal-seeking radios that didn't exist before. So all of this technology was brought back into the industry for automotive uh, fanatics like you and me to get cars. And now we had all these things, all these things that we never had before. One of the cars that stood out for me was the, uh, it was 1942 Chrysler had a car called the Barrelback Town and Country Sedan Wagon. It had these clamshell rear doors, quite an elegant car. So again, out of the war and all the ingenuity came a lot of new things that we see today. We see that with the space industry too. A lot of the technology being used in everyday items that we that we have. So there was a lot of good from this and a couple other things happened. Uh, some automakers didn't survive. Uh, there were companies like Packard, uh, Studebaker, Nash and Hudson, which merged to create AMC, which kind of limped along there for a while and then eventually died out. So you have some of these great names that were very successful before the war and just couldn't survive at the end of it. And, you know, one way or another, that cream is going to rise to the top and the <laughs> others, they will succeed for a while. Maybe they limp and maybe they're, they're just destined to have a short run and then they go out of business. 
And yet we see the technology showing up even in terms of style. Now, if I recall correctly, Buick was heavily involved in the production of wartime airplanes, military aircraft. And after the war, here come tail fins. Yeah, guess what? Well, I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to mention this. My father, who uh, passed about six and a half years ago, he served in the military, in the army, and he and my mom were shipped off to Japan after they got out of college. And that's why where I was made. There's another trivia answer or question. Where was Mark Green made? I was made in Japan long before it was cool to be made in Japan. So maybe <laughs> that explains some of my idiosyncrasies. However, my dad um, loved sports cars, and when they came back, he got an MGTC. A lot of these soldiers brought back unique cars that they saw while they were in Europe, and the MGTC was one of those cars that eventually ended up becoming a race car for a lot of people. Uh, the other thing is soldiers that made it through the war, they had a bit of a sense of uh, empowerment, if you will. I survived, so I'm going to live life to the fullest and guess what happened they started making hot rods so they took all this skill that they were taught while they were in the military of how to rivet and how to form metal how to build engines how to work on things and they added the fact that they felt pretty good that they survived the war i'm gonna go and do some crazy stuff so they started building hot rods and they started going racing and you know, it's really interesting how out of all the horrors of the war came some really cool ingenuity and people's attitudes about having fun. And of course, as you move into the 50s, uh, the housing boom and now the suburban boom and people needed cars to get into town more than they ever needed them before. And of course, the other factor here is tax war dollars to re that the U.S. reinvested in Japan uh, after the war to help them come back out of it. You think about that. We were fighting against a country that wanted to annihilate us. And then after the war, we went back and said, you know what? We're going to help you survive. And guess what came out of that? Honda, Toyota, they'd already existed before, but not to the level that they rose to. Datsun, which became Nissan. So again, out of all of this, the ingenuity of, of mankind, womankind, people uh, came back to help these things develop. And if you think about Japanese car manufacturers, well, Toyota's one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, as a matter of fact, I've heard it said that if you can get a Toyota that is specifically and provably built in Japan, you've got something special because there's <laughs> there's such an integration of the country's economies there. But I've, I've been told, you know, if it's made in Japan, it's one of those, you want to get one of those. There's something special about it, something extra reliable, perhaps. Well, I think you're right. Absolutely. So so all of this, and again, I really encourage people to read this book because uh, it really goes into depth. AJ does a wonderful storytelling, if you will, of how all these elements and facets come together that really benefited what this show is all about and going on road trips, having automobiles, the freedom to go out and enjoy the country and see things. And the fact that the war effort drove, there's another pun. I'm full of those today, aren't I? Uh, okay. drove, You're allowed. <laughs> I'm allowed <laughs> on this show. Uh, really drove things forward for people in the United States for automobiles and cars and, and all of that. So it's a really fascinating story that a lot of people, when they think of world war two, they don't really think of the other Part of this, too, which is kind of cool, is that in Europe, there were a lot of really high-end Delahaye 
uh, is an example of one. Car manufacturers were making Bugatti that were making some fantastic, very fantastic cars before the war. And even German Germany, if you think about it, uh, they trans translated their car efforts like, say, BMW and even Porsche. They took uh, Ferdinand Porsche in and said, you need to make design tanks and things for us. So the same things were happening in Germany and Europe. But all these old manufacturers, a lot of them hid away cars and things so that they couldn't be caught up and rounded up for the car effort or for the war effort and melted into metals and made into guns and things. And after the war, a lot of these things kind of came out of hiding old barns. They were, some of them were buried. And a lot of these are cars that you see in Concord events today that wouldn't have existed if somebody hadn't thought to tuck it away and hide it from the war effort. Let me quote to you, Mark, and, and thanks for that survey. That's very instructive. Going back to this article from Hertz.com, it says, at the start of the 1940s, the future of the automotive industry looked bright. The 1930s had seen dramatic innovations, both in mechanics and design. The cars rolling off the line as the new decade began were both artistic and luxurious. The 1930s had set the stage for a new approach to design, and for the first time, cars became a status symbol rather than mere transportation. And I stopped there because there was a depression. I mean, there was such poverty yeah. and such high unemployment here. I mean, you could go uh, Saturdays, my mom told me. there She grew up during the Depression. A nickel to go see a double feature on Saturday, which was great if you had the nickel. And yet <laughs> automotive design, luxury, the innovation. Who was able to buy all this stuff? I mean, <laughs> these would these would be prized items. And we're talking about the 1930s. That amazes me. Well, it is pretty amazing. And when you go to Concours events around the world these days and you see some of these cars that were built in the early 30s, you ask the question, who was buying them? But I guess the great Gatsby and his pals were the ones that were buying these automobiles because there's always a market for that segment. No matter what condition, financial condition the world's in, there's always a market for that. People that do have the money and support it. And the great thing about that is that that innovation is still happening. It doesn't just stop. And in the case of affordable cars, that's happening too. We even see that right now in the EV market. We're seeing EV sales decline, but we're seeing manufacturers, Tesla would be the king of them all, coming out with a, least, a less expensive car so that people that want to get into the EV world can afford that. So again, I always say capital goes where capital grows. So when a manufacturer sees an opportunity, they jump on it, they go and they build automobiles for people in all different segments, just like Japan. They were hurting, but they brought those little Hondas to the United States. Everybody kind of laughed at them at first, but <laughs> look where they are now. And I remember that, too. I remember that from the late 1970s, seeing those. And I thought, you know, I, I don't know if I could fit into one of those, but <laughs> I love the fuel efficiency. And they, among younger people, they had a kind of cachet. Like, yeah, get yourself one of those, tool around in a Honda. They're, uh, the Datsun, before they were Nissan, the Datsun, I think it was the B210, there may have been some problems with that vehicle, but it was great for the fuel efficiency. And that was at a time when you, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to pay 50 cents for a gallon of gas. 
Well, remember when you couldn't even get gas? There was a time in the 70s when uh, we were having some issues with the Middle East in their production, and you had to go on op- certain days to get gasoline. I remember that because I was just starting to drive at the time. I thought, I've just finally got my license, and now I can't get gas. <laughs> but again, those cars came out at a time that was perfect. And I often I have to go back in history to, to learn did they produce those cars just for that? But I think they were already producing very inexpensive, fuel-efficient cars because their economy was still trying to ramp up. So, again, uh, capital goes for capital grows. It always finds a way to produce, and people will always need a way to get around. They'll need transportation. So just like in the war effort, things just keep rolling forward. Another they do. I'm full of it today. It's okay. (laughs) You are forgiven. You know, and I remember those gas lines as well. And boy, was that ever a test of patience. Mark Green, I am so happy whenever you come on the air with us. You have so much knowledge. You're a fountain of knowledge regarding (laughs) cars, production, innovation, design, and of course, the enthusiasm to be an automobile enthusiast. There is a wonderful thing, and you just, you're a paragon of that, my friend. I sure appreciate you for coming on here today. And of course, we love our veterans. Let us always honor them because they have given us, and it is a debt that we cannot fully repay. We know that. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So uh, if you have a chance to talk to a vet, a lot of veterans could use an ear. Uh, spend a little time and ask them about their experiences because a lot of people are kind of afraid. So go do that with a veteran today, any day. Absolutely. Great, great advice. Time for us to close carsyad.com, right? Absolutely. That's where you'll find me. Thank you, Mark Green. Thank you. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning into American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.